weeks ago when we spoke on Psalm 73. If you were here, Psalm 73, do you remember that? Okay, I see a bunch of people that were here, but they didn't raise their hand. Okay, and you get to hear it again. <laughs> I did finish halfway through the psalm. I do want to finish it today. I will go over it a little more. First, let's read out of the Word of God, Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? Let's find out. Let me ask you a question. Are the wicked truly prospering? Are those who don't believe in God, don't give God first, don't care about God, don't talk about God, don't obey God, don't read God's word, not concerned about God's people, are they prospering? Absolutely. If you have everything the world has to give you, does that mean you're prospering? No. Well, we're going to find out something today. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1, if we can put it up there. Okay. Listen to this man. Listen to his anguish of heart. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, lawfully, They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, that means God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them, exclamation point. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have... All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you arouse yourself, when you despise them as phantoms, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 
But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I want to read something else here. That, that sounds like a confused man. That sounds like a man that might have a little bit of religion. That sounds like a man that might go to church once in a while. That sounds like a man who might read the Bible here and there. That sounds like a person that never really committed to Christ. He never committed to God. He really doesn't know. He's a bit of an outsider type of personality. Let me read First Chronicles and give you a little understanding of who wrote that psalm. First Chronicles 16. I will read verses 1 to 5. His name is Asaph. And they brought in the ark of God and set inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. Father, we come before you, Lord God. Give us understanding on how this man's eyes got off you, this wonderful man that was handpicked by David to be the chorus leader of all the worship that took place in the temple. Help us to understand this man's great fall to envious, to being envious of the wicked. How could this be, Father God? Teach us, Father God, this great man's fall into envy. Teach us, God, with a cautionary tale to be careful in our own lives, God, as we're working out our salvation with fear and tremble, and it always looks like maybe someone else is doing better than us. God, teach us about final destinies. Teach us about the glories of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you read this Psalm 73, and it carries these timeless truths of, you know, why do bad people seem to get over? Why do they seem to do well? And you know something? I know a lot of people that can fit into this psalm, and I know a lot of poets that write about it, the theologians, the philosophers, uh, have always asked, why does it seem, anyway, that bad people seem to do good? Or why does any bad person, bad, in our eyes, do well at all? Shouldn't they be smiting right away? He's a crook. He's not doing it the right way, but yet he's prospering. Trying to, we spoke about this the last time I spoke about this. These are the people that bend the rules. They don't do things justly. They do it their way, and they prosper, and it looks like they're getting away with something for a long time, and so on and so forth, and this is what's taking place over here. It's an age-long question. It's a question that's been asked in the Old Testament many times. Jeremiah 12 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. That's the prophet Jeremiah, complaining to God. Yet I would plead my case before you. And this is what he means. Why does the way the wicked prosper? That's what the prophet wanted to know. Why am I preaching all day long and nobody's being converted? They're still going to church. They're still going to synagogue. They're still bringing an offering. They're still coming to the festivals. But yet, they're not doing nothing right. Why are they prospering God? Job said the same thing. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Don't you, isn't there something in this that we just want the, the justice of God to spite people right away? Get him good, God. Go get him. 
And if he thinks, he, if he's missing any, we'll just give him a little hit list. You know, while you're at it, God, there's a couple of people in the gym I'd like you to get you at, and there's a couple other people at work, and so on and so forth, you know. We want to see justice. That's what's going on in our text. The wicked he's talking about aren't the bad other people in other nations. These are Israelites. They have grown up, grown up under the covenant of God. They're blessed by God. They come with their offerings. They come with their sin offerings. They come and they sing to the festivals. And they're doing everything religious. You with me? But their hearts could care less about God. And their actions show it. There's a tension. The tension this question poses is due to a fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is this. You're not looking at the end to the beginning. And as a preacher, as a pastor, I want to encourage everybody, you need a paradigm shift in how you look at life. You don't look at life from now. You look at life from where you're going to be in the future with God. And from that position, you are blessed. So no matter what takes place in this world, we got the next world to look forward to. That's what the psalmist is saying. As a Christian, we have to learn to develop these eternal eyes. We have to see from God's high perspective on what's really valuable in life. Talked to a couple of friends of mine, one guy. He's done very well in life. He's hustled all his life. And now he's looking for a little peace and quiet. He bought a ton of acreage up in Catskill Mountains, like 300 acres. And he, all he wants is to put a little hut on there and live there. See, you could have had that all your life. You can have peace and quiet. Or you can be rich with God. You can be rich with contentment. You don't have to wait till you make it and then try to buy it. You can have it. We can have it wherever we're at. With God, we can have peace and contentment wherever we are at. I want to speak about Asaph, and I read it out of Chronicles. But you guys have to understand about this man. This is no outsider. Asaph was David's right hand minister of song. This is no easy task. This is nobody who's taken the position on himself. The Ark of the Covenant coming back into Jerusalem after a hundred years hiatus in someone's backyard. Understand something. This is a high watermark in Israel's existence. This is no small thing. This week, go home, read First Chronicles 13 to 17. It talks about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a good read. You'll enjoy it. And you'll watch the trajectory of the whole nation coming out in worship. The Ark of the Covenant, that was the presence of God. That was the promise of God. That was the protection of God. Where the Ark of the Covenant went, there was confidence and security that God is with us. This is no small story. Asaph was right there when the Ark of the Covenant came back. He was leading the worship. There was thousands of people. And in front of all the people was David. King David was dancing around and he was twirling. It was a festival. It was a party. This was one of the uniting parts of the Old Testament of the kingdom of God coming together. Aesop was on the inside. What happened in Psalm 73? 
What a fall from grace. He's envious of the wicked. This is a cautionary tale for every minister of the gospel. For anybody who's in ministry, anybody who wants to go into ministry, it's a cautionary tale for every Christian man and woman. You can be on the inside one day and be envious of what's going on on the outside another day. You see, God doesn't work miracle after miracle. Life as a Christian is not just filled with one miracle after another after. Every Sunday there's a miracle. Some churches you go to and the pastors think you've got to stir up the crowd to think that there's some great miracle that's going to happen any moment. That keeps people to come back. Wealth and health and all these things are there. But that's not the right way. This is a better way, and we're going to find out as we go into our text. This is a good man. He loved the Lord. He loved the kingdom. He was loyal to the king. But yet something happened to him. And something that can happen to each and every one of us. And so this is written over 3,000 years ago. And it speaks to a contemporary situation that every human being could have. We can forget about God. When we're looking outside the church. When we're looking for other things. Let me give you a short synopsis. Of the man of Psalm 73. Follow along with me. Man loves God and his goodness. But the God loving man almost loses faith and confidence in the good God. Because this man starts paying more attention to sinners than to God. His heart is slowly being drawn away from Israel's good God. As he looks only at the apparent temporary prosperity of the wicked. Their seemingly carefree life that is not interrupted by difficulties. And his heart slowly begins to drift. He sees his bodies, the outer man, full and fat with wine, with food, and with comfort, and he forgets the food of the inner man, God's word. This loving man begins to focus on the boasting and violence of the wicked, and not on God's promises. He sees other Israelites following their boasting as it's God's wisdom. This man who loves God begins to even question faithful living. Devotion to God, he asks, why bother at all? As it was all a waste of his precious time. And all God's fatherly rebukes of correction, which are meant to establish moral good, not material ease. This man who loves God has the clarity of mind to keep it to himself. He infects nobody else. As he struggles with the issues of life and of faith. And as he seeks how to process the whole matter which seems as a worrisome and wearisome task, he enters the sanctuary one day of Israel's good God. He hears the praise. He hears the prayers. It's mixed with his problems, and something happens to him. He's reminded of an eternal truth. And for the first time in a long time, he sees life from the end to the beginning. Then he realizes the final destiny of the ungodly, the proud and the boastful, the arrogant, the sinner. He sees ultimate justice. God has the last word. 
It's all vanity of vanities and chasing after the wind. Foolish, faithless life today. Foolish, eternal death tomorrow. Now he looks at his own heart and calls it brutish. Ignorance. He was like a beast. His own words. He reasoned like an animal. With no God's sight at all. Everything he saw was earthly. Then he realizes that God was holding on to him. All his confused time, while his eyes were on sinners, while his eyes were on the prosperity of the wicked, and after he lusted after many things, the only reason his foot didn't ultimately slip, because God was holding on to him. Amen. Now the man who loved God, who almost slipped because he looked in the wrong direction at the world's joy and not the joy of the Lord, is back where he's safe and sound in the refuge of the Almighty, near to God that he loves. Now he wants to open up his mouth and praise God to all. That is a cautionary tale. This is a man that was privileged. He was honored by King David and God himself. But yet, over the course of time, he got distracted from his mission. You want to be successful in life? Do not be distracted from any mission you put your hands to. And God is the number one mission. Your relationship with God is the priority of your soul. It's a mission. Don't let anything come and steal that priority. Christianity is not just about showing up. This gentleman lived in the sanctuary. He didn't go to church. He had a bed in the church. He had a room in the back of the sanctuary. Asaph lives here. It wasn't for a lack of going to church. He just wasn't listening to God anymore. Because he was listening to everybody else. He was watching everybody else. The prosperity. Look, they're getting fat. They're getting sleek. They're dressed well. Everything's going good. I'm over here burning the lamp for the Lord. And I don't even have a good food to eat. Now you know why the 10th commandment says, Thou shalt not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's goods, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's anything. Do not covet. Accept what God has brought into our lives. And if you want more work with ambition, bring your plans to the Lord. Don't covet. Don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Don't think that more is better. If God has you as a lesser, if he has you in a place that looks like it's lesser, it might be best for all of us. Amen. Don't ever think that the grass is greener. Do you not remember the story? Hopefully you remember the story of a man named Lot. It was Abraham's nephew. And when he had a choice to go left or right, he chose to go right because the fields were great. Look at the abundance of wheat. He didn't realize he moved right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. In the next chapter, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. In the next chapter, he's reasoning with the Sodomites. It's a slow drawer. It just takes you in slowly but surely. I will just cover a couple of points and I'll make my last three points. Psalm, verse 1 starts, the start of the psalm with an acknowledgement that God is good. He's good to Israel. He's the good God of Israel. It means to be beautiful, pleasant, generous, festive, pleasing. 
He acknowledges that God is an awesome God of Israel. He acknowledges everything that God has done. But he also acknowledges it's only the pure in heart that recognize it. And he should know because he used to be pure in heart. Used to be pure in heart. He used to be pure in heart. But he wasn't listening to the good God of Israel anymore. Verse 2 says, but though through the writer knows this, he almost blows it. He almost loses faith in Israel's good God. He knew Israel's history. He's part of Israel's history. What he saw was the equivalent of seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. What took place with the Ark of the Covenant coming back in Jerusalem, it said Jerusalem above every other nation there was around it. Israel was on top of their game. There was no greater nation than Israel under David and his son Solomon for a short time. He was watched it all. Don't you ever say to yourself, if I was just there and I saw Jesus, oh, the Apostle Paul, well, he saw Jesus. Don't you think if you just saw a couple of miracles, you'd live a better life? Don't you think if you just saw a couple of dead people raise the church that you'd be a better Christian man or a better Christian woman? Don't you? No. Don't get that right. Obedience is not by what you see. Obedience comes by what you hear. We got a perfect example of this man. He was there when the kingdom got raised up. He was part of the fanfare. He was David's second-hand man. But yet... He lost his spiritual eyes. And he started looking at the prosperity of the wicked. And he said, What's up? why not me? Verse 3 gives the answer to this slow backsliding of heart to God. His eyes have drifted elsewhere. Adam and Eve's eyes drifted elsewhere. Paul's best friend Demas, his eyes drifted somewhere else. Jesus talks about three soils that heard the word, but they drifted somewhere else. See, these people were lovers of pleasure. They were not lovers of God. Sin always looks better than it turns out to be. Always. Let me just stretch a little bit. Let me just bend the rules a little bit. Let me have a little fun. Let me kick up my heels. You got to remember something. All that glitters is not gold. Verses 4 to 9 tells of this man's unreasonable logic. He critiques their lives. They seem unaffected by life's difficulties. And the only enemy they really have is death. And they don't fear that either. This unhindered life of luxury seems to be fertile ground for arrogance. Toward man and then toward God. Breaking all the major commandments. And this is why violence is usually not far behind such people who think they're God. When people don't think they have to answer to somebody and they got all the toys that everybody else wants, pride and arrogance usually follow. Some sort of abuse sooner or later comes in. They have a feeling of invincibility. When everything you touch is gold, you feel like you're going to live forever. Surely God's with me. Everything I do is blessed. As a matter of fact, even the unthinkable takes place. Verse 9 says, They didn't set their mouth just against man, 
they set it against heaven. God can't see a thing I'm doing down here. I'm doing whatever I want to do, and, and I'm not worried about the almighty God. That's what they're saying. You know, rarely have I seen this type of, how can I say, magnificent prosperity lead to great humility. Usually, overnight success usually leads to pride and arrogance. People think of themselves as God. That's what's taking place here. And this man's in a dilemma. This man, Asaph, that was... David's picked for the job. He was the leader. That was a brand new ministry. That doesn't go back to Moses. Worship started with David and went to the time of Jesus Christ. He's the founder of praise and worship. Did you sing today? Did you enjoy it? That's Aesop's gift. Along with King David. It's part of the believer's life. But yet, he's starting to lose it. He's looking somewhere else. The fanfare's over. You're just back to being a regular believer now. The kingdom is established. Things are going well. I don't need another ten miracles. I don't need another... David doesn't have to conquer another king. It's, it's a settled state. It's in a settled state that a lot of bad things happen. Just another regular day in a believer's life. He's seen no miracles. He's not seen any great things. His eyes are looking at everybody else who's saying they're believers, but they're not believers. It gets worse. Verse 10 and 11 tell us a short story of the, the naive. To them, and the New Testament talks about being careful of the naive because they're, they're taken in by all sorts of cunning and craftiness of men. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this believer that's represented by just a simple childlike faith. Simple childlike faith. You know, they're beautiful people, but they're very impressionable. We see it all the time. Send me a hundred dollars and I'll send you a prayer cloth. You know, if you're looking for the money, I need that blessing. Here's the hundred, God. Send me a thousand, I'll give you ten prayer cloths. That's true stuff. That goes on all the time. Because the naive, they love God. And it sounds like this man's got the answers. He's got he's got the magical water. He's got magical powers. No, he's not. He's arrogant. And the naive think it's wisdom. That's what it is. That's what's taking place here. Paul calls these people cunning and craftiness. Seeking to mislead the naive. Romans chapter 15. And that's what's taking place. And Aesop's there like, God, when are you going to step in? For me, as a minister... You know who it is to me that drives me absolutely crazy? That people that sit there and make all sorts of promises to God's people. Promise after promise after promise. Not giving, twisting, they're perverting the truth. 
and the congregations are growing on empty calories and they're all coming in to hear what's the next promise what's the next miracle what do I got to do to see the things of God they're junkies on spiritual opiates they they need another fix what's the charismatic preacher going to tell me today let me tell you something you go to church sometimes it's boring sometimes your mind is somewhere else Sometimes you're just distracted. Sometimes a song list just doesn't get you. Sometimes a sermon doesn't touch you. But guess what? We're not here to dress it up so everybody has entertainment. It's about the truth. It's not about your feelings or your entertainment. Some days, if you think we have to hit a home run every time we come into the pulpit, you're wrong. My job is to give you the truth. Pastor John God's job is to give you the truth. And as Christians, most of the time, I like to use this analogy. Truth is like you seeing someone hooked up to IV. You got a sick person; you just can't feed them too much. They got to eat through IV. But slowly but surely, the IV just drips. It's boring to watch. It's even worse to be on it, and it drips. And that's the truth. Sometimes it doesn't come crashing in, but it sustains us. And eventually gets us strong. That's what church is like sometimes. So everybody in here, once in a while you're going to go through a boring season in your Christian life. And it's just not doing it. Let me tell you something. God has it designed it specifically like that. So are you here for him? Or are you here for you? He'll do that. Nobody's saying hello to me no more. I used to be the center of attention. Get used to it. We're on to the next new believer. (laughs) So true. So true. Are you with me? Amen. Can I speak like the pastor? Amen. But God designs it that way. So we find out that I'm here for God, for nothing else. I want you to know something about this church. We might not have a lot of things, but one thing we have. We have the truth, and we're faithful to it. And if you want Christ, we have him. you want something else, I can't help you. But if you want Christ and his word, we have it. And we have it in abundance. But verses 12 to 15 is where I lost, and this is where I'm going to jump in again. If we can just turn to 12 to 15. Put that up, Jackie, please. He says this. If I had speak, if I have said I will speak thus, it almost makes no sense, but I'll clarify it. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You see, he had the whereabouts not to say anything. He's a minister. He's the one who's singing songs. He's the one leading people into praise and worship. He's the one explaining the text. Listen to me. But he says, I kept it all to myself. I didn't want to betray anybody. I don't want, to, I don't want anybody to be subject to my feelings. I want nobody to be subject to my lack of faith. He's keeping it to himself. That's how bad it was. If he was to speak about it, he might have betrayed people. He goes on to say this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Listen. When you're trying to understand spiritual truth without God, you will weary yourself down to the bone. Until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. 
I can preach on this the rest of the week. He went into the sanctuary. You know what goes on in the sanctuary back then? Three things. Prayer. Worship. And they would read the scriptures. And while he was there with his questions, maybe he, maybe the text was a certain text in the Old Testament, whatever the prayer was, whatever the praise was, it pricked his heart. It opened up his eyes. And he realized, I got it all wrong. Life is short. Life is a vapor. And they're not going to have it. And here I am. God is allowing me all the glory of eternal life. He had an aha moment. Every believer since the time of Asaph has to have this aha moment. When you realize unless you have eternal life, you are poor. You're poor. No matter what you have in this world, no matter how comfortable you are in this world, no matter the prosperity you have in this world, how much respect you have in this world, if you don't have eternal life, you have nothing at all. What does a prophet, a man, Jesus says, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. That was his moment. What a, listen to verse 18 and 19. 18, 19, and 20. What a stark contrast from verses 4 to 5. Truly you set them in slippery places. He, he sees it from God's perspective now. They used to be fat and sleek. Not even fear and death. But now he sees something different. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. He might as well say, but they don't know it. He leads them to self-deception. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as family. Understand something. What Asaph finally realized, God will not be mocked. I want to encourage people here who like to witness. You're looking at a man who loves to witness the gospel. If someone's in my life for more than a day, I will tell them about Jesus Christ one way or another. It's a little generalization. The point is this. If anybody's in my life for any short period of time, I will get to speak to them about Jesus Christ. Hands down. It's my mission. I love it. I enjoy it. And you hear all sorts of things. And you have to remember, God won't be mocked. I don't believe that. I don't believe I don't believe this. I don't believe that. I don't believe in God. I don't believe that. God won't be mocked. God has the last word. That's what the psalmist is saying. God has the last word. Don't be taken in by their prideful arrogance that they're going to live forever. Every man is only a breath away from his last breath. Aesop knows it. The book of James taught it. Jesus taught it. All the prophets knew it. All the apostles knew it. Every true born again believer in the New Testament has to realize guaranteed tomorrow for no one. And that's the way to approach life. 
God has given these people over to self-deception. That is a place you never want to go. Ever. Listen to verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, now he's reflecting again. When I was pricked in my heart, he says this about himself, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. That's interesting. He had a deep confession. He's looking at himself from outside. He's having this out-of-body experience. He's basically saying, I was out of my mind, God. How could I ever be envious of the wicked that don't have eternal life? How could I be envious of anybody who's not? I should feel sad for them. He's going through a deep confession. He's going through, it's it's self-loathing. How dare I stand in the judgment of God? How dare I scrutinize the seeming lack of God's justice? God's justice is coming. Don't worry about it. Can I give you a secret? You want to hear something? You think God's justice is going to come? God's justice already came. The whole world is condemned already. Every human being is condemned. Every human being is already condemned. The only way out is to come to Christ. There is no other way. If you got a problem, you got to bring it to the Lord. Think about this. We do it all the time. You're in this room. You're a Christian man. You're a Christian woman. You've done this. You've judged God. I've judged God. I see apparent things. I want God to come down and smite those bad preachers on TV who are robbing God's people of their money and giving them lies and deceptions and half-truths saying peace, peace when there is no peace. That, 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 I, I loathe that. But I've got to wait for God's justice. I've got to wait. Maybe God will be gracious to them and lead them to repentance. It's not about me and you seeing retribution. It's about God being just. It's much greater than retribution. Can't miss this. Listen to verse 23. When he's out of his mind... With judging God. Listen to verse 23 and 24. Nevertheless, even though I was a beast, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You know what that means? Who's holding who? Who's holding Asaph? When he's a brute beast. When he's judging God. When his eyes are on the wicked. When his heart's filled with envy for what other people have. When his foot had almost slipped. When he almost lost his way. Guess who was holding him? Guess why he didn't finally slip? Guess why you and I don't finally slip? Because God's holding our hand. That's why. You know why you're going to make it to heaven? Because God holds on to you. 
And God holds on to you. And God holds on to me. Jesus says it. No one can snatch you out of my or my father's hands. And my father's hands are greater than mine. You think it's easy being a minister? You think, oh, you know, just because we're preachers and we're pastors that are, everything's okay and cozy. You don't think we struggle? You don't think men of God struggle? You don't think women of God struggle? You don't think the elders of the church? You don't think that Asaph was just a human being like the rest of us? And guess what? The antidote is the same. You got to keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. That's the only thing. This story is just absolutely magnificent. It touches on every, it, it shows you the power of redeeming grace. It shows you the power of God's persevering with his people when they're struggling in life. You see the humanness of Asaph, a man who was privileged by God, privileged by the king, was in the inner sanctuary, was close to the presence, he was close to the Ark of the Covenant, but yet he lost his sight. I mean, this is, this is wonderful. We'll close with this. Verses 25 to 28 gives us a picture of a man back home again with his God. Listen. I'll start in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel. That means his word. And afterward you will receive me to glory. That's eternal life. Whom have I in heaven but you, he asks. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. They did fail. Guess what? But God is the strength of my heart and a portion forever. You might not know this verse of scripture in the New Testament. It's found in 1 John chapter 3 verse 20. Even though your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. You think you're going to go from now to eternity? And not mess up. That's what we do. It's easy to miss it. But God holds on to us. We got a lot to rejoice. Amen. God's holding on to all of us. And then he closes with this. For behold those who are far from you. Shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Now he's just living in ultimate reality. This is ultimate reality. But for me, it is good to be near God. That was his first mistake. Even though he was a minister, even though he was part of the uh, part of the ministry for the Ark of the Covenant, does not necessarily mean he was close to God. Just because I come preach the word, guess what? Doesn't mean the pastor's close to God. And many pastors live in double lives out there. We hear falls all the time. They're living in with their secretary. They're sleeping with this one. They're sleeping with that one. They're still in the church's fun. They're going over here. They're going over there. They're living a double life. You would think they should be the closest to God. No, no, no. But as for me, it's good to be near to God. I pray that everybody in this room knows that secret to contentment. Just to be near, close to God. What's your great ambitions now? What, what is it that's distracting you? What is it you want, to, you want? Come on, be honest. What do you want? What is it you really want? What's that thing, you, if you had it, it would make life great. Maybe you'll lose 10 pounds, or 
or just get that job, or maybe you're the man of your life, or the woman of your dreams. What is it that can easily distract us from being near to God? It's a very human dilemma. It's very human to fall into that. For all of us to fall into that. Let me close with two applications, and that's it. And I'll be finished with this song. What's better? An ounce of prevention or a pound of cure? You ever hear that? Oh, axiom. What's better? Do you wait to get sick, then you look for a pound of cure? Or with just a little an ounce of prevention, you can keep a lot of things with That's what we have. It is a cautionary tale. Stay close to God now. Asaph's one mission was to do this. Invoke the blessing of God on the nation to pray and to praise. How's your prayer life? How's your praise life? Are you invoking God's blessing on your life and on your family's life? Asaph stopped doing it. That was his mission. That was his calling. He wasn't living it, though. This is not an anti-success story. As though you're not supposed to prosper. As though prospering in life is sort of an ungodly nature. You're doing something. You want to prosper. You got a job? Get two jobs. You got three jobs? Be an entrepreneur. Make it work. But don't put it ahead of God. That's all. Don't put it ahead of God. Let God be the CEO and the CFO of your company. Let God manage it. And have the thing, God, whatever you want is fine with me. Everything is yours, God. Be successful. My wife knows it. I know that. I got friends, Christians, successful. Throw out a shingle. Be successful. But make sure God is in control of the success. Otherwise, it'll smother you. And the last one. I would like everybody to start really thinking and praying about looking at life from the end to the beginning. Instead of waking up every day thinking from the beginning to the end. Wake up every day saying, you know something? As Aesop came to find out, I'll be in glory with you, God. When you can wake up one day and you got a smile on your face because the most important thing is your salvation, you are in the sweet zone. <coughs> Athletes know the sweet zone. You just can't miss a three-pointer. Curry just can't miss. He's in the sweet zone. When you learn to live life from the end to the beginning, you will be in the sweet zone. And whatever life tempts you with or throws at you, you will not stumble and you will not fall. Because God is your portion forever. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We honor you, Father God. We thank you for Asaph's, Asaph's you know, cautionary tale. God, I thank you for the humanness of this man who knew you, you were loved, he was loved by you and by King David, he was honored with gifts and talents and calling and ministry, he ministered before the Ark of the Covenant, Father God, but yet, 
even him, his foot had almost slipped. God, let us all realize that one day we can stop looking at other things and not even realize it. If any of us here are looking in other directions, help us, God. Bring us back. You are the portion of our life, Father. In Jesus' name.